0: to it in our time of prayer, and some of you know about this, some of you don't, but um, one, one of the cool things that's happening today is uh, there is a campaign out there called He Gets Us. Who, raise your hand if you've heard of He Gets Us. There's a handful of you in here. Um, he Gets Us is a national advertising campaign to make great the name of Jesus. <clears throat> it started, uh, I think, all the way back in 2019 as an idea. There were some, some Christians who were very wealthy who... Um, saw kind of the way that Jesus is perceived out in the, the culture today, and we're really tired of it. And so they said, we, we, we want to get a hold of some, some advertising friends of ours, some people that work in the industry. Uh, the guy that created, that worked on Nike Just Do It is actually one of the people behind this ad. Uh, there's some really cool people behind it, and they said, we want to create a campaign, an ad campaign, like any other company would, but for Jesus, uh, to make his name great. And it's not politically motivated, it's not associated with any particular church or denomination, uh, but what they did is they created a campaign called He Gets Us. And the entire campaign is various videos and articles and bus billboards and all over the place uh, that talk about the way that Jesus experienced a lot of the same pains and sufferings that we have. So when you go through these struggles, look, Jesus has been there, He gets you, He gets us. Right? And so they've been airing, if you've watched football games, you might have seen a random He Gets Us ad pop up here and there. Uh, they are airing, they have paid to air two separate ads tonight in the Super Bowl on a national level. They've spent millions of dollars. I think they said that we're, we're coming up close to a billion dollars on this campaign that has been spent. And what's really cool <clears throat> that they're doing <clears throat> is if you go to hegetsus.com or .org or whatever it is, um, from one of those ads, as someone who just wants to learn more about Jesus or has a prayer request or has some kind of struggle that they need counseling or help with, whatever your reason is for following up, if you go to that site and you text a question to He Gets Us, He Gets Us, the campaign forwards those straight into the inbox of local churches to where those people are. So we as a church are signed up to actually partner with He Gets Us, and so what happens is we've already talked to a couple people over the course of this last week since we've signed up, but as people watch the Super Bowl ad in areas all around here and have questions, those texts with those questions will come straight to my phone on an app. And we will say, hi, my name is Pastor Vince. I am a pastor of Stowe, uh, you know, Presbyterian Church. You know, how can, I, how can I love you, care for you, serve you, Right. And it'll go to all the kind of local churches that participate. So these people who have never heard of Jesus before or have a bad conception, as they ask questions, they're going to be put straight into the local churches where they live. And that's the whole point of this campaign. So pray for that tonight. Uh, Look out for those ads for those of you who plan on watching the Super Bowl and, and have some readiness to maybe you're at a party and someone watches that and goes, what's that all about? Be ready to have some conversations maybe about the Lord and how he's at work in your life and and who he really is, not who the culture says he is. Amen? Amen. And give thanks to those people who just selflessly spend money. They're anonymous. We don't even know who they are. They're putting millions of dollars just to make Jesus' name great. They have no agenda of their own. They're not trying to get money for some organization. They're literally just driving people to the local church as an outreach. It's as if we hired a $3 million outreach director, but we didn't have to pay for it, which is great, right? Amen. Well, we're continuing on in the book of Genesis, uh, and today we're going to look at Genesis six. But the question I have for you is this: Can you think to a time and raise your hand, but don't say what it is, right? That you felt, you know, whatever it is, you did something wrong or you didn't run the way that God wanted you, but not you felt like God was genuinely furious with you. Raise your hand if that's ever been you. And I'm not talking like he's a little disappointed in my behavior. I mean like. Lightning's probably coming. Like, man, he's got to be, he's just off the lid, off the charts mad. He can't possibly love me anymore because of these, you know, these thoughts I've had or these things, right? There's times where God is disappointed in Scripture. And then there's times where God just seems to get off the rails angry, right? It's like the righteous wrath and anger of the Lord just comes pouring down. And, And in Scripture, one of the things that's hard is a lot of times we can make sense of it, right? Like he has the Babylonian and Assyrian exile because the people don't worship him. And so he, sh- he shoves them out into exile under other nations to suffer for a while. And then allows them to come back and try again. You know? But then there's like sometimes in scripture where God just does stuff that you go, "Well, that was a little harsh. I think to Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, where they they come and everybody's giving all they had. And Ananias and Sapphira come and they they don't give all they have. They hold back a portion, right? And and the Lord just strikes them dead, like on the spot. And then as we dig into scripture, one of the things we find out is he didn't strike them dead because they didn't give all they had. So if you're not giving 100%, don't worry. Like you're, you're safe. But they were lying about it. Right? And so God strikes them dead simply for lying about their giving. Just on the spot, dead. Right? What, do we, what do we do with stuff like that? Right? Because we see people in Scripture who sin far worse who the Lord seems to not do that to. right? Imagine if everyone in Scripture who committed a sin of lying or worse was just instantly struck dead. It would be a really boring book. like No one would make it. Right? We would just be reading, and then they died. <clears throat> And then they made it to like six years old, but then they died. There'd be no one older than like four in Scripture because they all all would die, right? Sometimes it's really difficult to understand the anger of God in in certain circumstances. And that's both true as we read Scripture and in our times today, right? What, What is God doing sometimes? There are a few passages, for me at least, that are harder to understand in in this kind of a light, than the Noah flood account. It is an immensely difficult passage. And one of the things that's weird about the flood account is how much, if you you know this and you grew up in the church, how much of a fun, happy Sunday school story it is. Right? How many of you at some point in a church that you've been in, grew up in, maybe it happened here and they painted over it, you you had a mural of the ark on your wall somewhere in your church. Right? Every church that I have been to and worked in until this one has somewhere had, <clears throat> like, the Noah's Ark mural. With the kids and the cute animals and they walk two by two and the flood and, you know, they just kind of float around, kids. And then the, then, then the pigeons come and, like, do you think of that? The, the, the Noah account is literally a story of God committing holy thorough genocide. Like, he kills everything that moves, except for one family and one of each animal, or two of each animal. Like, the rest of the world just gets destroyed with death. And we put it on our walls, and hey, kids. That's crazy. Some of you are going to call, you know, your kid's church or your local church where you grew up or whatever, and you're going to say, guys, paint the wall today. This is nuts. But the Noah account is 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 a devastating, tragic account. It's not a happy, fun mural. It's insane. The Lord, in his anger against sin, kills the entirety of the human race and every living creature except for those who he saves on the ark. Like 0.00001% of the population gets to live. Everyone else just wiped off the face of the earth. And so this morning, one of the things we want to look at is this text, and we want to understand why, right? This is an account of what happens when God, in his holy way, not in a sinful way like we might, but when God gets fed up. What does God do when God gets fed up? So we're going to look at the, the lead-in to the account this morning. If you've not ever heard the Noah accounts, if you're new to Scripture and that's not something that you're familiar with, right? essentially the Lord is, is tired of the sin of the world. He, he looks at the people he's made with regret and he ends up wiping them all out. He calls on one guy, Noah, and his family to build this massive ark. Right? And he builds it and then all these animals go on it and his family goes on it. And then the Lord makes it rain for 40 days and 40 nights and he floods the entire earth. Right? And everybody is washed away and dead and then after some time, he allows the, land, the waters to recede, and the ark, you know, crushes into the, a rock, and then they come back out, and they repopulate the world. And then, you know, the rainbow comes, and God says, I will never do this again. Here's a covenant between Noah and myself, and, and then from there, the world kind of continues on. But what we want to look at today is not the actual story. My, my hope is that most of us are somewhat at least familiar with that. And, and really, if you're not, that recap is all you need. What I want to look at is the lead-in. What gets us to the point where God says, I'm going to do this? And for that, we have to go to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. So I want to invite us to stand. We'll read that account. As opposed to some of the other passages we've had, this one's mercifully short. So you're not going to stand for a very long time. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in them, in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. Welcome to the most contested, confusing passage of the entire book of Genesis. You're here. You've made it. If you read any of that along and went, what? You're in good company. Uh, You should not feel bad for your confusion. This is the most scholarly debated, contested passage in the entire book of, of the book of Genesis. Right? There's a few things that we read that we, we have to answer some questions and go, what the heck is going on? And we're going to work through those. But here's some of the big question. Who are the sons of God? Right? It's an interesting term. And, and who on earth are the Nephilim? Right? Are they like a special tribe somewhere? or What, what are the, the Nephilim? Number two, what happens? What's happening in verse 6 when the Lord says he regrets? Because right? to me, regret, when I regret something, it's because I did something wrong. But God is perfect, and so how can God, who's perfect, have regret in some way? That doesn't make sense. That's confusing. And then number three, what exactly is it, after all we've seen, that provokes the level of anger that God has in order to wipe out the face of the earth here? Like, what is happening in this particular instance that that causes God to say, yeah, I've had it. I'm wiping it all clean, right? except for this Noah guy. So those are the kind of the the three big questions, but we'll look at them, and I want you to keep something in mind before we do. There are times when we stumble on Scripture that is tremendously confusing, and I'm not going to make sense perfectly of everything that you've read in Genesis 6, 1 through 8 today. There's some stuff in there that's mystery that stays mystery, right? And and, and what I want to encourage you today with is, is that is okay. It's all right sometimes that the nuance of some things in Scripture remain mysterious and unexplained to us. Right? But I want to make sure we don't miss the larger picture because we're so caught up in what the little individual pieces are. Because we can actually get the gist of this passage regardless of what the answer to some of these questions are. Right? And so I think the phrase that you know, I've heard some people use is don't miss the forest for the trees you know, kind of thing. Okay, So let's stick with that. Um, with that in mind, I want to look at the first question. Who are the sons of God, and who on earth are the Nephilim? Okay. There's two theories, predominant, there's there's more, but two kind of predominant, dominating theories as to who these descriptions are, are aimed at. The first is really beautifully, logically packaged and makes perfect sense to us, right? The second is crazy weird, but has a lot of scriptural, textual support. Right? So you might hear it, and you might go, ah, no, Vince, you're nuts. But, but when you start to dig into scripture, you start to see that there's actually a fair amount of support. And I will tell you from the outset, I, I genuinely don't lean towards one or the other of these. I, I do not know which of these it is. Right? But let's talk about them a little bit, and you can kind of make up your own mind. And in the end, I'll show you why it really doesn't matter. The first is this. <laughs> when I said it doesn't matter, everybody checked out already. <laughs> The uh, the sons of God, theory number one, the sons of God are the descendants of Seth, and the sons of man are the descendants of Cain, right? You'll remember that, you know, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, right? Cain killed his brother Abel, right? And then God gave another child to Adam and Eve, Seth, because the line, the redemptive line, you know, the, the people that God was going to call to himself wasn't going to come through the line of Cain. But Cain went off and had children of his own and, 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 and so forth. And so, you know, one of the things you ask is, well, if there was only a Cain and an Abel and Cain killed one, well, who did he have other children with? Genesis doesn't tell us every single person ever born. And so it's presumable that there were other people at the time. Right, that, that the Lord had, had allowed Adam and Eve to have or make or whatever. We don't have those details. But Cain has a family of his own who then has a family of their own. And the line continues all the way down. right? And there's people that are from the essentially the line of Cain that are kind of increasingly further apart from the Lord. And so if you look at Genesis, chapter 4 is devoted to tracing kind of the lineage of Cain. And we see how his generations start to increase. Chapter 5 traces the line of Seth. Seth is who eventually Noah comes through, right? And so the idea is that here in Genesis 6, what it's talking about is, look, the sons of God, like the godly line, Sethites, saw the daughters of the Cain line, the Cainites, and decided that they were pretty attractive and started to intermarry with them, Right? And, and the, the, the godly line and the ungodly line kind of became muddied waters. And the kids that resulted of that, the generations that came from that, are, are called the Nephilim. Right? That's a beautifully logical packaged understanding of this passage that makes sense in light of Genesis 4 and in Genesis 5. Right? Beautiful. Tie a bow on it. Perfect. Ready to go. Here's the weird one. The sons of God were angelic beings... That saw the daughters of man, just humans, and decided they wanted them and came and took of the women wives for themselves. Came into them, slept with them, had relations with them, and bore children. And these half-angel, half-human beings are what we consider in scripture to be the Nephilim. If you're thinking, that's crazy. Yup. No better way to explain it. What I would ask of you is just simply this. All throughout scripture, we see over and over again accounts of things that break the supernatural barrier that don't make sense in our scientific, clean packaged world, right? The very death and resurrection of Christ is something that is beyond our comprehension and understanding. So it's not really impossible or far-fetched that there would be, like early on in the in the genesis of the of the world, this relations between angelic beings and and humans, right? That's not something that is impossible in in the in the world in which we function scripturally. It, it could have been. The other thing is that we see that there is a fair amount of scriptural support that that suggests this, right? There's a couple places that we can go. One of the first is First Peter three talks about these fallen angels in connection with the flood accounts and the provo- provoking of God, right? They they invited the punishment of God for what they've done. Uh, later in Second Peter, he, he harps on it again in chapter 2. He talks about them and connects their sin, the angel's sin, to the flood account. Right? If we go to, to Jude 6, we see it as well. He mentions these same angels and it says, who did not stay in their position but left their dwelling. Right? And so there's this concept of the angels leaving their normal occupied dwelling position to come down and, and be with people. Right? So there's these, all these nuanced references throughout Scripture. That, that suggests that there were angels somehow involved in this precursor to the angering of God and eventually the flood account with Noah, right? So we have these angels mentioned constantly in a way that's linguistically clearly meant to talk about actual angels, right? Not just godly people, right? The other one is that in the Old Testament, this phrase sons of God is almost always actually a reference to angelic beings rather than man, Later on in Scripture, he starts, the Lord starts to use the Son of Gods, the sons of God, the children of God to refer to his people. But at this point, that's not the, the language that is common. More, more common would be the idea of referring to angels. So it is, let's just put it this way. Both scenarios are equally possible. Angels came and mated with human beings? That sounds like a weird sci-fi kind of thing. But it, but it is possible. And I'll tell you, I, I, I keep trying to figure out where to come down. My German logic brain really wants to just go with option A. But I, I, can't, I can't tell you. Like, I, I can't somehow get to one or the other with any kind of conclusive nature. And so we just have to let that remain just a little bit of a mystery. However, it doesn't matter. It's okay not to know. I think we get in trouble when we start to try to know things in Scripture that we're not supposed to know. Right? There are parts of God and how he operates and how the world works that are unsearchable. that We just have to say our, our finite human minds just can't really wrap their heads around why it is this way or how it worked. And in this case, what he wants us to understand related to the sons of God and the Nephilim is actually really plain regardless of which one. Right? It also answers our second question, what, or third, what's third question. What was the moment... That made God so angry, and here's what it is. Regardless of which option, right? if it's option one, what made God angry is that after Cain and Abel happened, He brought in Seth to try to maintain this some level of godliness or, or, or godlike devotion and worship. Right, and, and what happened in the end? Right? You have the, 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 the debased kind of line that goes this way. You have the godly line that goes this way. He, he worked really hard to get them to function that way. These guys are walking with the Lord. But in the end, man, they just, like, they just come together. And everything's stained and tainted in the end. Right? It's the moment where there's just this complete, like, ah, we don't care. We're just going to marry them because they're attractive. And, and he sees the godly line of Seth just completely disintegrate into sinfulness. That he had worked so hard. So Adam and Eve are created. The fall happens. God goes, okay, we're, we're going to maintain some level of, of redemption here. I'm going to give you Seth or Cain and Abel. They ruin everything. I'm going to give you Seth. He eventually ruins everything too, right? It's just no matter what happens, mankind just goes into like a complete depraved direction. They constantly are walking away from me. And so he says, I, I, we, I, no, we're just going to wipe the slate clean. All right? Option two, angels... Angels are coming and mating with human beings. Like those fallen angels that have, that have walked with Satan are coming down and they're intermingling with my people and there are these Nephilim half-creatures now that are one and the other and that's a mess too. Regardless of which option you choose, the point is that the world had disintegrated so far in the sinfulness that God was just furious with it. Right? Absolutely furious I have a, a dear friend, one of my closest buddies, he's a pastor in, um, in New England. He has, he gave me perhaps what is the best analogy for sin. Right? And you might have heard me say it before. Um, sin isn't a thing that we do, right? You're not, you didn't sin today. You are a sinner. Sin is like Glitter. We, yesterday, we had a birthday party for my daughter Erin, who turned one last week, and it was, the theme was sparkle theme, and my wife came and said, we're going to have a sparkle theme party, because I don't pick birthday themes for girls in our house, because um, that would be terrible, and my first question was, is there going to be glitter? <laughs> I hear sparkle, you, you think pretty, I hear glitter for the next 20 years of my life in our house, right? Because What happens? When you get glitter anywhere near you, in your house, on your clothes, whatever, whatever, that stuff's everywhere. It doesn't go away. I don't care how many times you, you try to launder clothes or vacuum your house. Like, HEPA filters can, can suck out disease, but they can't suck out glitter. I feel like the vacuum just spits it right back out the other end. And it's just everywhere. Glitter permeates everything. If you get one dot of glitter, if there was a glitter dot here, and you took it on your finger and you went home, there would be six of them by the time you walked in your house. I swear glitter breeds, right? You cannot get rid of it. It pervades everything. It invades everything. It is everywhere. Sin is like that, right? Sin is like glitter. And so what happens is once sin entered the world, you can try to contain it, right? You could try to go to patient zero and and do something, but there's no hope of that because sin permeates everything. It stains our, our thinking, our inclinations, our ways of, of relating to God are saying because we have a misconceived notion of who he even really is and what he's like. Our, our ability to, to walk in any way close to what God would call us to walk to is completely uh, impossible apart from God's intervention because we're so, we have such a proclivity towards away from him that that's what our nature now is. Right? You didn't sin this morning, verb. You are a sinner this morning noun it's 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 who you are it's the essence of you and me right. that's, that's that's what sin is and so one of the things that that happens here is as we get to this passage we're witnessing the glitter corruption we're witnessing sin totally corrupting the world it's the point at which god looks at the the created order when when the godly and the godless just start to just intermingle and it's all one giant soup of crazy sinfulness he goes. There's no. Uh, there's no. It's like it's like a field that is that had a rose bush in it, but it's been overgrown with weeds for fifty years. You're not getting that rose bush back, right? And so he goes. I'm. 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 This is it. I'm. I'm going to wipe the slate clean. Right. God's anger burns. Because we're seeing the total corruption. That's what he says when we get to verse 5 and we start to get to the part of this passage that isn't weird and full of Nephilim and, and angel love. right? We get, to chapter, we get to verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every thought was evil and it, it didn't show any signs of ever being different. It was just continually evil everywhere he looked. Right? And we see in verse 5 this parallel echo back to Genesis 1. Right? In, the, in Genesis 1, God creates and he puts these things together and he forms the world and he has the mountain and then he has land and, and sea. At the end of each day, he, he saw the creation and saw that it was good. Right? And so here we have this kind of contrast of that. The Lord saw that it was wicked. Right? It's the complete opposite of Genesis 1 and the creation account. Everywhere he looks, he sees wickedness, and he goes, I got to clean this up. Right? And So his anger burns against the total corruption of the creation in every possible way. Next, we see this mention of regret. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so he said, I will blot out man whom I have created. One of the things that we have to understand is that God's persona, God's personality, God's heart, God's way of of thinking and relating isn't like ours, right? His anger is not like our anger, Our anger is sinful and misguided, misplaced. Like when, when, when scripture said God gets angry, it's not the same as you getting angry at like your kids being crazy or something, right? Or a person at work who's wronged you. Some part of that might be, you might be 10% your fault or your anger might not be measured the way it's supposed to be You're perfectly righteous. You might have some vindictiveness in there and, and all those kinds of things. God's anger is perfectly righteous and justified and measured and never over the top. That's what makes this passage so hard. Right? How, how can it not be over the top that he annihilates all of mankind? But the regrets that he experiences is not a regret in the way that you and I think of regret of, wow, I messed that up. Right? His regret is very different. He's not saying, man, I screwed up, I shouldn't have made them. What he's saying is, this man is not aligning with the purpose of my created order anymore. That is really regrettable. And we know that that the way he feels is, is that, because the next thing is that it's not just regret, but that he grieves. The Lord regretted that he had made them on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Anger isn't born out of a vindictive anger. It's born out of a deep, deep, loving, caring grief over how the world has turned out. Because what God is seeing is that it no longer lines up with the way that he intended it to be. And the way that he intended it to be is what? Good or very good. He said the world's not good like it should be grieves me to my core, and that is so regrettable. And because we have a God who acts, who has to act, who can't just sit idly by, that's the very thing he does next. He acts. I will blot out man whom I have created, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am, I am sorry that I have made them. Again, the sorry isn't a I did something wrong, but it's just a, it's, it's, it's a regret over the way that things are, are looking in this moment. It's like when, you, when, you, when your kids are wayward in, in adult life and you just, you know, you're not regret like, oh, I messed them up. But it's just a, oh, what? Man, I wish it weren't so. He's grieved by the sin that he sees because he loves every single human being that, is, that has been created on the world. And he wishes for them to, to walk in the way that he has set the world up to be so that they can have the fullness of life. But they aren't doing that. And that is unbelievably regrettable. And so God has to act and he has to move. Right? And I've I always wrestled with this text trying to figure and reckon somehow God's love with the harshness of what's happening here. But that's because I had a bad understanding of God's love and harshness and what it actually meant and how it actually worked. See, in our world, to love is to make sure the person that is being loved or having been shown love to is as happy and joyful and comfortable as possible. For us, love is about comfort, right? When we love someone, we try we make their lives better in an earthly sense, or you try to at least. Right? You take them out to a really nice dinner, you, you serve them as you as much as you can. You you love, right? When you think of your spouse and the ways that you love and care for your spouse, you're making their tangible life better every day, somehow, hopefully. Right? If you're not, step it up, right? But that's but that's kind of the that's the way that we think about love. The way God thinks about love is I have created a world a certain way, and I know that when we live in that parameter, it's best for everybody, and you're living outside of that parameter, and so I know the best thing for you is to be here, but you're here. I'm going to get you here. And quite frankly, I could care less if it hurts you in the process. Right? I'm not worried about if you're offended at me. I'm not worried about if you're mad at me. I want you here, and I will get you here at all costs, regardless of the temporary pain that, you, that, it, that is experienced with that. And so God's desire is for his creation to function as he intends it to. And when it doesn't, he will do anything he needs to do to make sure that ultimately happens. That is the flood. And that might seem harsh to us, but it's not actually harsh. Harsh. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We are not living up the chief end of man in the world in which we are today. And in the world of Noah's time, they certainly weren't doing it either. And he said, no, I'm not going to have it this way. I'm going to have my world function the way I know it functions best. And I don't care how angry you get. You'll thank me later. And so that's what's happening in the Noah account. He wants his world back. There's a really great... Story and illustration, and I've, ha- I've had it in my head for, for decades, and I, you know, I, I try to cite things, but I for the life of me can't remember where this came from. But it's the analogy of the potter and the clay, right? There's a story of a, of a potter making a clay pot out of clay, and it's told from the perspective of the clay, like a personified clay. And it talks about all the various things that a potter does to clay. And as he's beating it and kneading it and shaping it and spitting it dizzy and and all the things that happen, the clay is just constantly crying out, you know, what are you doing to me? You're hurting me. It's painful. It's awful. This burns. This hurts. This rips. And he puts it in in the kiln and lets it dry. And he goes, what are you, are burning me up? Like how awful? And at the end of it all, what comes out is this beautiful shaped pot. And the clay looks at itself and goes, oh, wow. I'm majestic. I'm Beautiful. This is exactly what I'm supposed to be. But it was really painful to get there. And I had to go through the fiery furnace and be pounded and shaped and molded in ways that weren't comfortable for it to arrive there. It's this beautiful illustration of the way that God works in our lives and the lives of his whole kingdom. He will do everything he needs to do in order for his kingdom to flourish. And at the time of Noah, that meant starting clean. So he did. And you might think that's harsh You might think that's not loving. You might think that's vengeful. But God isn't a vengeful, angry God. No. God is grieved, and God is a God of action who will move in every way necessary in order for his creation to flourish. God loves us and everything that he's made. And one way or another, God is going to have his way. And so the Noah account is actually a story of God's grace, even before Noah comes in the picture. Even if Noah hadn't been spared, it would still be an account of God's grace because the end result was a creation more ordered after God's heart. So we think it's all about us and our comfort and our well-being and how loved we feel and how happy we are. No. It's about God's creation being as it's intended to be. However, that has to happen. Right? But then we get this beautiful picture of grace. At the end of it, we get Noah. Right. God spares Noah. And here's what's fascinating about that Noah is not sinless. Nowhere does Scripture suggest that he's sinless. As a matter of fact, when we look at the account of how Noah relates to God in the midst of the ark, it, we, we just understand that Noah is everything but sinless. He's kind of a mess himself. But God, for whatever reason, picks him to carry on the human race after the flood is over out of an act of graciousness. In the same way that when Adam and Eve sinned, he cast them out of the garden, but he clothes them. Right? Because God is always about showing tangible grace. And Noah is a foretaste of the things that we're going to talk about next week when we look at Abraham. Right? We see a God of intention in this story. The flood is not some angry outburst. It's this well-orchestrated rescue of his creation. And, and by the way, he knows that it won't solve the problem for good before he ever gets into the flood. One of the things we see is at the end of the, the flood account, this is what it, this is kind of one of the last sections before we get to the, the repopulating of the earth, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the crown because of man. Here it is. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. The Lord acknowledges, look, I, I get, the, the, the heart of man is sinful from youth on. Like I, I understand, the end of the flood, Like this didn't clean the world up in, in, in a way that is thorough. I have a plan for that, and you're going to see it in the New Testament when my son comes and dies on the cross for everybody's sins. Right? But, but, It's a foretaste of what is to come. The Noah account is a preview of Jesus. Noah's line is what carries through and repopulates and kind of saves mankind in the end. Jesus is the one who ultimately will save. And we see that. That parallel. And as we continue next week, one of the things we'll look at is Abraham, and we'll see how from the line of Noah on, as the earth repopulates and grows in in population, Abraham eventually will be the one that God calls to himself in order to begin his nation, through which he is eventually going to display his glory. But that we have to look at next week. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for Oh, the fact that you are focused on your creation being everything it can be. We, we pray that we might be able to, to get behind you and follow you and remain even when that seems hard. Even when we can't make sense of the reason you're doing certain things, Lord. We know and trust that you, you tell us that you made this world and you made us and we know that you're good. And so even when we're confused, even when things seem unbelievably harsh and difficult to us, even when we can't make sense of your actions, Lord, or understand all of your word, we trust that you're good. We trust that you know what you're doing. That you care about us. and We trust that your ultimate goal is all of us renewed in a creation not stained by sin, but entirely turned to and devoted to you. Because that is what is best for us. Help us live that out. Help us trust that in the moment when the world just seems so attractive. And Lord, we pray that people might come to learn that tonight. That all across this country, there might be people that just hear your name, maybe for the first time or maybe in a new light, that they would start to have questions and get to know you the way that we know you. We praise you and we love you. And all his people said, Amen.